friends, Romans, countrymen, let me your ears. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the MC Lars podcast. It is Monday, September 2nd, 2019. Happy Labor Day. I hope you all have had great summers. Hope you're having a great three-day weekend if you live in the U.S. If you live abroad, I hope you've had great bank holidays as they do in the U.K. And anyway, this is episode 53, and it's brought to you by the following Patreon supporters. Shout out to the new ones, Frank Forkel. Melvin the Muppet, and Simon McGill. And shout out to my old Patreon supporters, Scott Myers, Jeremy Green, and Button Bashford. And as always, we have a special Patreon Larshan of the week at the end of the podcast. You get to hear a message and a story. And that person gets a free t-shirt. And if you sign up, patreon.com slash mclars, you can be on the podcast and win a free t-shirt and tell a story. So stay tuned for that. So speaking of the Patreon those of you listening know that I just put out a song called Rivers of NorCal, which is basically about Jack Kerouac and uh, my memories of Northern California and everything he goes through in the book Big Sur. And this summer, I spent a lot of time in Northern California. Northern California is interesting. I didn't make it all the way up to Alturas, which is like the northeast corner of the state, but there's a lot of petroglyphs up there, like prehistoric petroglyphs, and there's iron makers. There are iron workers up there. It's hard to believe in California that's even an industry. And uh, that part of California was an entry point for the Gold Rush Trail, where like 300,000 people during the 1840s came to California. And so, I was thinking about all of that, and I was thinking about how California has changed and continues to change, and how it's just a different world than I remember as a kid in the 80s. And I was going through like hard drives and binders of CDs of demos and stuff in my parents' basement this summer when I was at their house. They live uh, near Big Sur, and I'm putting out some of my stuff. I'm re-releasing some of my old stuff on vinyl with a few different labels, and that's the that's not important. The point is that I was looking for mixes for alternate versions of songs that we're going to re-release and i found this tape now sometimes in life we stumble across pieces of media that have an incredible impact on us i know i remember in the movie finding forrester there's a quote sometimes you find books and sometimes the books find you but it was like so cool and i found this tape with the interview i did with this big sir poet rick Mastin. That aired on KSBB, which was the radio station where I went to high school. I was very fortunate that my high school had a radio station. And this aired on March 17th, 2000, right? So almost 20 years ago. And I was 17 when I did this interview. And I decided to base an episode around my memories of Rick Mastin. Like, why not? This was my first quote unquote podcast, I guess. We uh, went up, my dad dropped me off at his place. He lived up in Big Sur. Um, this street called Palo Colorado, which is kind of near the Bixby Bridge. If those of you who are familiar with the area, I went up there with my dat recorder, it was actually the radio stations, and I sat with him and I talked. And he had been diagnosed with cancer the year before, prostate cancer. And so the conversation is kind of like based around what legacy would he leave? And, you know, it's stuff I've been thinking about. The work we create, what's the legacy we will leave? And it's interesting also to think about a kind of more bohemian California that would keep a guy like this alive, like someone who could survive off his poetry living in the woods in a Big Sur that's kind of become like the California we imagine in Big Little Lies, right? You know that HBO show, The Wealthy Tech Money. Um, so in this interview, he tells the story of a blacksmith 
And that's why I talked about the blacksmith when I was talking about Northern California and now tourists. He talks about a blacksmith who loved his work so much, he died with a hammer in his bed. He reads a poem about that. And we're talking about the digital revolution. And Rick talks about his website, which was like totally progressive for a 70 year old guy in the early 2000s to talk about. But he says, what, will I die with a mouse in my bed? I hope not like a computer mouse. So anyway, I wanted to play this episode and connect it with the history of a lot of the stuff that we talk about in the podcast. I talk about the beats a lot. I talk about Kerouac. He was writing and living in Big Sur when Kerouac was, but kind of like as Kerouac was very Hollywood and on the forefront of this, you know, very mainstream underground revolution, Rick Masson was just writing his poems and writing songs. And he worked in a printing press and he would learn to make his own books, right? And so I thought that was really interesting because he made his living off of doing shows, talking and selling the books that he printed. And, um, he died May 9th, 2008. So he joked that he, since he was born in 1929, that he lived between the two depressions, the two great depressions of the era. But um, his dad owned the Carmel Pinecone, which is a local newspaper that later, my drummer Craig from my second band, Amphoteric, his uncle would own that paper. So it's a freaking small world. So Mastin was 78 when he died. He'd written 23 books and. Um, he would say, you know, there was a lot of press locally towards the end of his life. He said, how do you go out? You go out dancing. How do you do that? By doing what you've always done, being yourself. He talks about in this interview, he talks about this idea of you create a poem by creating a chorale about something. You write when something drives you nuts and you have to document it. And that takes a picture of it and creates a fence around something that sticks in your mind. And that is why I named my first album Radio Pet Fencing, the album before the laptop EP was based on this idea. You create an electric fence around a concept. And so that was an homage to Mastin. So towards the end of his life, he got a, the Arts Council for Monterey County, gave him a Champion of the Arts Award. And he said, all you have to do is catch a fatal disease and the awards just fall out of the trees like apples. So humble guy, I asked him if he considered himself the poet laureate of Big Sur. And he said, he brushed it off like, no, I couldn't think that. But you know, he was considered that by many. This is my interview with Rick. This guy inspired me. He took time out to talk. And then he came and spoke at my school. And I remember I got to introduce him. And it was just really cool to see someone who made a business out of finding truth in things and connecting with people and living an honest life full of integrity. And, you know, I just think that this is a very special interview and I thought it would be cool to dedicate an episode to him. So shout out, Oh, shout out to my friend, Chris Gates, because we were co-hosts on morning madness, which was our Friday morning show. Chris, I did a podcast with a few months ago, but um, he helped produce the segment with me. So shout out to you, Chris. Okay. Here's an interview with Rick Mastin. Rest in peace. <laughs> Rick Mastin, the man, the mystery, the legend. Rick Mastin is a poet from Big Sur, California, who lives on Palo Colorado Street. He is known for such poems that he's written, as well as such songs he's written, such as Let It Be a Dance, Christopher Sunshine, 
and I'm drowning, babe. He lives in Big Sur with his wife in a house he built by himself. By himself. I had the honor of going to go see his house this weekend and interview him in the greenhouse he had attached to his kitchen. It was a very fun time, something I'll never forget. Here's a poem Rick Maston wrote for Gary Tesler, the radio station KOA in Denver. It's called Talkin' on the Talk Show. <clears throat> Here we go. Every Friday at 11.45 Denver time, I, as a, quote, regular feature of the show, end quote, drop everything and expose myself to millions, an electronic flasher. Lowering my voice, I try to project Orson Welles reciting the Old Testament, but secretly suspect it sounds more like Mickey Mouse with nothing to say. Hi, everybody. And how can I be certain I'm not just standing in a closet, hearing voices, talking to myself? A hundred years ago, if I'd been caught doing this, they'd have put me away for sure. The orderlies exchanging glances as I desperately try to explain about having a talk show host in my ear. Nevertheless, every Friday at 11.45 Denver time, I duck into a telephone booth and, like Clark Kent, pray that this morning I remember to put on clean leotards. My God, it's also religious. This casting bread upon the airwaves, and a true believer never doubts the existence of a listening audience. He simply says his prayers, hangs up, and goes about his business. We're going to play the interview now and just have a general, wonderful Rick Maston time. So, Mr. Maston, thank you for uh, spending... Call me Rick. Rick. <laughs> no, Mr. Maston was my father. Okay. And so I feel more comfortable if you call me Rick. Okay, Rick. Well, first of all, I just want to thank you very much for letting me share this time with you and letting me interview you. Happy to do it. All right, cool. Okay, my first question for you is, to you, what is poetry? Honesty. And uh, all of the other stuff all is trappings, but basically, uh, to me, if a poem is honest, you know, if you and you and you can tell if it's BS or not, uh, uh, that's that's number one. And then, uh, to me, uh, when I write, and what we're trying to do here, even when we talk, is build a corral, like a horse corral, using words like posts and uh, the, the wire, the fence uh, lines, like sentences and you try to build a corral around a concept an idea or a feeling uh, I do it for myself and I never write about things that I don't understand I write to better understand things uh, and so as you're building your corral you're sort of following the fence line along and you can kind of tell if it's just going off nowhere you can kind of tell if it's making a corral and um, it's worth doing, even if it's just a journal or an entry in your journal, and you're trying to... I, I tend to write about the negative. That doesn't mean it can't be funny. But be happy. Don't write about being happy. Nothing wrecks that faster than writing about it. But if you're angry or you're confused or you're annoyed or uh, frightened, those are the things to build the corrals around. Then what changes it from just an entry in a journal is what I call the gate which is a little tricky something that when you read a, a piece of poetry where you you read and then all of a sudden you go oh and yeah. and that, that's the gate that kind of closes it and then you've got what it is in there you're trying to uh corral great that's a very good description of that well i, I hope you're following it <laughs> um my question you kind of answered this but 
Why exactly do you write poetry? Mainly to get in touch with the things I need to. Now, during my life, historically, I've written for other reasons. I worked in Hollywood as a rock and roll songwriter, and I was writing for the dollars then, and I'd listen to what was going on on the radio, and then we'd try to ape it. And so that was money. Then I got involved in the whole hippie thing and the folk singing stuff and the lyrics I were writing had to do with politics. But both the money and the politics, uh, I'm not interested in anymore. I'm much more interested in better understanding the life that I'm living and what's going on around me. Cool. Um, What is your process for writing poetry and how do you go about doing that? A lot of students, when I speak in schools, ask me sort of like, when do you do your writing, you know? And I always say, what you're asking me is, when do you think I should do my creative work? And I always tell them, uh, go to that 24 hours in your day, you know, where anxiety won't let you sleep. And because to me, what, what creativity is anxiety bottled up. So I happen to be a morning person. So I wake up at five and it's still dark. And for years I just lie in bed and and couldn't go back to sleep. So I'd start worrying and I'd knock my kids off one at a time in car wrecks and wreck the marriage and lose the job and all of that. Being very creative, but in a negative way. So what I do is even though I don't feel like getting up, I'll go get up and I'll go into my my writing desk and I'll dig out an idea I'm working on. And as I begin to work on it, that feeling of anxiety, you know, that scary kind of feeling, that it's the same feeling when you think about it, but you know the feeling you have when you got an idea and you know it's working for you? You know, all yeah. of a sudden, wow, that's the same feeling, only going out rather than in. So that's why I say, I, I use those moments. Now, I can write at other times of the day, but never as creatively. I, I tend to polish in the afternoon, and I never do anything in the evening. And my wife is a night person. She does all her creative stuff at night. That's how, that's how come our marriage lasted as long as it did. We'd, we'd hardly know each other. I'm up early while she's sleeping, and then I go to bed while she's just getting up. And we, we pass in the doorway to the bedroom, and hi, hon, hi. You know, it's cool. <laughs> Cool. Um, when you when you do write, when do you have a structure? Like, do you make sure your poems rhyme, or do you usually just put what you feel? I'm interested. Well, when I write song lyrics, yeah, you you tend to rhyme the ends of the sentences then. Uh, but generally, when it comes to rhyme, I look for interior rhyme. I like the sound of a word. When when the sound uh, gets in, I I should have I I have a couple of poems that I could illustrate that. See if I got that that one in here is a book of mine called uh, You Don't Want This Dead Time Here While I'm So you fill it with uh, Why don't you describe the room while I'm looking for this one? Okay, we are in um, this is Rick's room apart from his kitchen and it's kind of like a greenhouse with lots of cool stuff on the walls. There are two birds in a kind of aquarium kind of design thing and um, don't you think this is really a set if if you were going to go to a poet's house wouldn't this be the kind of house you expect see I built it myself and my wife kind of decorates it with all her junk and she's a poet too and uh, people come down here and they say God it's just what but the trouble with theatrical sets is they leak 
and they're cold and they blow over in the slightest wind and this house is rotting but I, I still think it's exactly the kind of house you'd expect to a poet to live in. Now I can answer a bunch. Do you remember that question you asked me that, that made me want to go get this poem? Does a poem have to rhyme, that one? I'll, I'll give you, and this will answer another thing. Remember I said that um, uh, a poem is like uh, building a corral? I was on a tour, this was about 20 years ago, and I was reading back in Maine, and it was late spring, almost at the end of the school year, and uh, we were invited to do some readings at this little college. And the, we stay with faculty people when we visit. My wife was traveling with me that time. And all I noticed when the guy, when we arrived that evening driving up from Boston, that he, he limped a little when we carried the bags into the house. Uh, the next morning, it's real warm, and we decide to have, he decides that we'll have our breakfast out on this little deck. And oh, it, it was warm enough that I was short sleeves, and he had short pants on. I saw that he'd lost a leg. And he had a, a false, you know, I um, uh, can't think of the word now. What's a prosthetic? Prosthetic. Yeah. There you go. Prosthetic limb. And is my style, if I perceive anything about you that I felt would get in the way with our communicating, that's the first thing I talk about. If you had lost your hand, uh, before we'd started this, I'd say, yeah, you know, you know oh, how do you tie your shoelaces? Or try to make it light, but... So the moment that you can talk to me about your your hunchback, what hump, you know, uh, or if you're black, that's what's really heavy. Uh, so many white people are so screwed up in this culture because we aren't supposed to notice the color of anybody's skin. So when a black person comes into the room, that's all you can see is the color of their skin until along came Malcolm and said, black is beautiful. Well, if black is beautiful, then I can notice, okay, you're black, yeah, yeah, you know, so, so in a sense, so the first thing I'm going to have to do is talk to that guy about, do you want to talk about that? And he did. And he told me a story that was just absolutely just terrifying and heart-wrenching, and I knew it was such a heavy-duty story, I knew I was going to have to write about it. It, it, it marked me that much. So I went home after that event and I set it up and I'm going to read you the corral part. I had the poem part, hadn't uh, the, the gate part hadn't come yet. But so just, and then I'll tell you, I'll, I'll go back into the story. This is called a farm accident years ago. It's almost just like a newspaper account of what that man told me. The horses shied and then wild-eyed, bolted from the field racing back toward the barn traces flying the mower still attached and running close behind your father shouting an alarm as that ugly snapping arm reached out taking everything off at the ankle weeds and corn and hollyhock and then in slow motion sweeping through the stems of two small boys frozen in surprise and sometimes later, in a photograph we find, those grinning little pegged leg peats, proud as punch, posing. So I wrote that about as fast as I could write it. And that was the start. This guy was, he said he, I think he said he was five and his brother was seven. And they were playing in front of the barn. And this was, the, his, this was out in Nebraska where his parents lived. And in those days, uh, the horse, these horse-drawn big mowers were like those big uh, hedge clippers that yeah. were out in the grass about 15 feet. 
and something made the horses shy, so the horses ran back to the barn. The two little kids were playing in the doorway of the barn, and the horses ran around the kids, but the mower went right through them, and both the little boys lost a foot. And the father was running right close behind, and the picture of the kids flying and feet and blood, and the father, uh, God, it just, you know. And then he reached in his pocket, and he brought out a newspaper um, well, it's actually a magazine clipping of two little farm boys. This guy was about, oh, 50 when he told me this. Uh -huh. So this would have been like back in the 20s. And they two little kids with their arms around each other and these funny little lace-up prosthetic limbs. And they're just grinning out. And I, I just, so I put that thing up on my um, desk working on it because I, I wanted to finish, but I knew that it wasn't a poem yet. It just was an account of what he told me. And maybe in a poetic way. So I um, took me about a year, and I, I wrote that about as fast as I could type it, what you just heard. Yes. And so I like interior rhyme in this question about rhyme. Very often, if you can get the sound of a word happening, not at the end of the sentences, which can be trite, but if there's a sound that starts happening. So I thought maybe, and I went up and I was looking through this, and I thought taking everything off at the ankle, weeds and corn and hollyhock. The word hawk rhymes with stock which is what the kid was, ah, but that was too obvious. Then all of a sudden, another word popped in my mind, and I typed the end of this about as quick. It picked up that rhyme, and I would never have thought of it if I hadn't thought, and all I wanted to say in this poem was, I can't forget the story you told me. So now I'll back up in this, and sometimes later, in a photograph we find those grinning little peg-leg peats, proud as punch, posing, Though the color and shape are exactly right, an artificial limb is what it is and can be put on and taken off. But the story that comes with it walks and walks and walks. So now you get the whole picture that I'm trying to work out why that for my own personal, why this so stuck with me. All I really wanted to say, I can't forget the story you told me, but because of the rhyme, and that's a very kind of a stock, that, uh, that sound is a very powerful sound, and there was the ending that walks with me. And so that's how a poem happens, if that's of any use to you. That's really great, that's a wonderful story. Thank you for sharing that. Does your music make you a better poet, and does your poetry make you a better musician? Well, I haven't written a song in 25 years, so I don't know about that. Um, yeah, I think, I think you know, everything you're going to do in your life is going to help you with the next thing you do in your life. So I did, as a, when I was a little older than you, I learned carpentry first, which made it possible to build my own house. Um, I worked in a print shop which made me learn the printing trade. I worked at the Herald Printers for 11 years. And that's when I, I was doing this uh, songwriting in Hollywood. You stand by a press and that do -dum 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 -dum. And I was always ruining printing because I was writing song lyrics then. And you know, do -dum 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 -dum. I'm, not, I'm supposed to be looking to be sure the ink streaked down the middle of the sheet. Uh, poor old Harry Rain, you know. He never fired me, but he should have because I ruined a lot of print jobs <laughs> writing songs. Uh, 
And, but that later learning that process made it possible for me to make a living because I publish all my own books. And I'll give you a set before you leave. Um, so knowing how to do this, now I'm working on a computer, of course, uh, but this is a $12 book. Cost me two bucks. Wow. So when I, and I don't put them out in the bookstores because the book distributors want 60%. Well, and I print lots of 2,000. But when I speak, if I came over and did a, a little gig over at your school, uh, there'd be a certain number of kids that might want, while I was there, want one of the, the books because they'd been moved by the reading. And then I would be there to sign them. So I, I think of my work more as memorabilia. Mm. It's like going to the play, enjoying the play, so you buy the, the program when you leave. When you've won the football championship, you want maybe a pennant from that year. So in a sense, and that was only made possible because I learned the, how to make books when I was a printer. So you were asking me generally the songs, certainly they taught me um, how to... Uh, actually, they taught me more, and another little secret about my own work, they taught me to write for your ear, not your eye. Uh. Most poets write for a printing press. So I don't do very well with academic English teachers. They look at my work and say, well, it's a little bit thin, don't you think? And the reason they think it's thin is it doesn't have enough layers. It, it doesn't have enough metaphor and simile and things like that. But I'm much more interested in communicating something to you than impressing with you and how well I can put words together and build this fancy corral. In fact, sometimes when you're using that same metaphor, I think that printing press poets oftentimes build such a wonderful, fantastic, impressive corral that it's so hard to see through. Sometimes you can't see what it is they were trying to corral. Or I may be a little bit the other way. I just, when I'm up in front of an audience, I just want you to know what I'm dealing with. And I wanted to know what I'm dealing with. So I'm writing first myself, but then I'm writing really, 80% of what I write is for your ear. And I don't know if you noticed this, but you can't think and hear at the same time. So like uh, when you're, you're going, listening to a poet read, uh, you're listening to a printing press poet read poetry, which is worth doing. And, but very often you get stuck by a, a line and your mind just says, wow. Well, while you're saying, wow, the poem is going on, you're missing the next yeah. line and you're missing where, but a reader, a printing press poet, knows that you're going to put your finger at the if wherever you're stuck and you can work it all out slowly so it's a matter of time uh, i write poems that have to be immediate for for you as a listener you know as a listener you've got to know exactly what's going on because you haven't got time to screw around with a lot of metaphor and a lot of layer layers and stuff as a listener and as a reader uh, I wouldn't sell many books if I wrote printing press poems because even Pulitzer Prize winners lose money for the book uh, co companies that take on their books. They, most, if whenever you see a, a poet printed by a big publisher, mm -hmm. it's prestige they're after. This person won such and such a prize and so it's a feather in their cap. But you don't find a major, you'll find little companies doing it, almost most of them, because there's no money in it. But I, selling to my audiences as I travel, the only 
bookstore in America that carries my work is the Thunderbird. Oh. And that's just because May's a friend of mine and she doesn't take 60%, she just takes 30%. So I just take her a few books in, mainly when people phone up and says, how do I get your work? I say, let's go to the Thunderbird. So would you um, maybe consider yourself the poet laureate of the uh, Central Coast? No, I, I mean, uh, that wouldn't be right for me to, but would you consider <laughs> me to be? <laughs> that's not up to me. Uh, I'm not even sure. Poet laureate, you know, what's that mean? I guess um, the uh, respected... The most respected and most prestigious. And uh, No, I wouldn't say there's a couple of poets over there in Santa Cruz that are way better known than me. Oh, Adrian okay. Rich and, you know, and so, yeah. so if it, it's that. But as a, as a working poet, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to say that I've yet to meet another one, a poet, who made their entire living, raised kids, build a house, and did it all with poetry since 1968. Most other poets have to teach or do something, and, and I'm, I'm talking about the real good ones, you know. Uh, and so I think I've, I've done something unique because I've yet to run into another one that's done what I've done. What's your favorite poem you've ever written, and would you care to share it? Sure. Uh, well, I have to, I'd have to share two. Uh, one that has maybe struck the most fire with other people and one that I would say uh, might be uh, more... Actually, the, the, the second one will be a, a printing press poem because, and this is the one I always whip out and show uh, English teachers. <laughs> but, the, but maybe the one that, the, the first one is a song lyric, but I've used it Whenever I go into prisons, whenever I, I do a high school, and you all kids have been marched into the assembly and been told you're going to have to listen to a poet for the next 50 minutes, and there you sit with your arms folded, I've long ago realized that you all don't want to be bored. And again, all you want to know is, is it honest? So I'll, I always would tell, you, tell the group ahead of time um, that I'm really there, I'm not on television. And when I'm reading about my terminal cancer that's my terminal cancer which is what i've been doing recently and when i'm reading about my son who's a crack addict that's my son and when i'm reading about the death of my best friend that's the death of my best friend and if i look out and see two of you whispering or studying or reading a book i'll stop right where i am and call you on it because it's it's not that i think you're being rude it's that you spend so much time with media you don't know where live people are anymore and because when you go to a rock concert, the, the level is so high that it, whether you talk or not won't matter. Yeah. But, and I find the rudeness isn't so much that people are rude, the rudeness is that people don't know where live people are. But I always use this one first to make sort of the point, I say, no, this sort of sums up my whole philosophy, which is, I ain't waving, babe, I'm drowning, going down in a cold, lonely sea. I ain't waving, babe. I'm drowning. So, babe, quit waving at me. I ain't laughing, babe. I'm crying. I'm crying. Oh, why can't you see? I ain't fooling, babe. I ain't fooling. So, babe, quit fooling with me. This ain't poetry, babe. It's screaming. I'm screaming that I'm going to drown. And you're smiling, babe. And you're waving. Just like you don't hear a sound. I ain't waving, babe. I'm drowning, going down right here in front of you, and you're waving, babe. You keep waving. Hey, babe. <laughs> <laughs>
are you drowning too? Oh, and I was pleased to see you smile. Usually, uh, kids, uh, what you're smiling at is the feeling of, yeah, me too. I, I call it communion. And whenever I read that in prisons, with a, you talk about an audience that's uptight and really wants to know what you're doing in there because they know you're not getting paid for it. So they expect you're in there with some religious motive or something. And I'll tell them, you know, all I have to say is this in one way or another, and I'll read that. And in prisons and in mental institutions, they always laugh. <laughs> they laugh. And it's the laughter, not at the situation, but the laughter of recognition. Yeah, me too. And I've discovered my hippest audiences always are laughing at the dark stuff because they've all experienced that dark stuff. And the other one would probably be, well, I've got a two that I could do, and I'll pick one of them. The day I discovered that I was a speaking poet was uh, I, w I was doing a reading up in the Northwest outside of Portland, Oregon, and there's a little college called Monmouth College up there, and they had a college for the deaf. I thought the college had hired me, and so I went there for, to do a bunch of classes during the day, and that evening I was doing a larger event. And so I'm uh, going to the student affairs, and they said, we've got something interesting for you this evening, some classes today, but this evening you're speaking to our college, to the deaf, uh, for the deaf. And I said, huh? And so yeah? There'll be about 300 people there and they'll all be stone deaf. And I'm thinking, what am I supposed to do? I'll hand out my books and, and sit up there and then they could read one and look at me and, and you know, and, hey, that's funny, right? You know. So uh, they said, don't worry, not to worry. We're giving you a, a signer, mm. somebody. So the woman followed, she says, she's gonna be here this morning and she's gonna follow you for, uh, through the three or uh, four classes we have for you. And so she gets a sense of your style. Well, after the first class, she came up after and said, I can't sign you. I said, what do you mean, you can't sign a poet? She says, well, of course I've been signing poetry, but I can't sign you because the way you say it is as important as what you're saying as the words you're using. And when you're signing poetry, you daren't miss a word because the poet works so hard honing that everywhere, it's not like giving the news, but a poem, you don't want to miss a single word. But there isn't an easy sign for every word. And some words, I'd have to slow you down and spell it out. And to do that is going to wreck the effect of your poem. Uh -huh. So she, the way we worked it out was I read different things in every class, and then she picked the ones that would sign best. Uh -huh. And that evening, uh, the magical moment of her sitting there, and she was interesting. She was an in, uh, a signer that believed she was no more than the type on the page. But to me, she's another human being in the room. And if it's funny, she ought to be laughing too. And if it's sad, she should be sad. Uh, but she didn't believe that. She was, you know, just, so I spent a lot of time, there was a, I hope you won't have to bleep this out, but there was a time, I have some shit in some of my poems. She's a very Christian lady. I learned this about her early on during the day. So in a head, she'd be signing away and I'd zip ahead one of my poems and I'd, and then she'd look and take a deep breath and the whole audience is waiting to know what's going on and finally she'd go, make the sign and the whole audience would collapse laughing. But the magical moment of over an impossible situation, communication taking place, I knew I was going to have to write about that as I had to write about the, the farm accident. And so I wrote this called The Deaf. And 
without that lead up, if I hadn't done that for you, you being as I think, it's a little bit more of a printing press poem. I've layered it a bit more. But I've helped you by giving you that background. And usually I don't do that. I usually read the poem and want you to interpret it first. Then I'd be happy to tell you what I wrote about, but that doesn't negate what you heard. So with me, generally, you always get two for the price of one. And that's the way to listen to printing press poems. Don't sit in their audience wondering what they mean. Enjoy it like you would a piece of music. You don't worry about what the, the musician's trying to tell you. You let the music take you where it will. And later you might find out he was walking about a walk through a forest in Germany or something. But let the words take you where they will. Then later you can find out what the poem was about. But that day, as you're listening to that poem and that reading, if he's a printing press poet, what it means to you is way more important than what he was getting at, as far as I'm concerned. So in a sense, I've, I've negated my own rule with this particular poem. But you asked for, you wanted to hear what I would consider. And probably I'm the last person to consider what's my best poem. That will be done after I'm dead by other people. Called The Deaf. Imagine a woodsman swinging an axe in the distance, the tree speaking out of sync, and nothing, except what is left in your eye. Chips still fly, but your ears, dumb, fleshy things, hang from your head, useless handles, frozen stiff. The world around you fills with dead air. The quiet thickens till the atmosphere is packed solid, surrounding you like clear wax. And everyone there rides in a limousine, stars of the silent screen seen through shatterproof glass. The faces glide past, lips moving like goldfish. The trumpet has lost its voice. The seashell mute as a dish. My God, in a place like this, what do you do with a word like inconceivable? Spell it, she said, hands moving behind the question in a kind of semaphore, and you talk too fast. Later that evening, the poems fell from my mouth, little naked birds crying for life, and who would have known they were there had she not taken them into her care, holding them up till they could fly on their own. And back where this began, the tree came crashing down, and the sound was the sound of the deaf applauding. And that's how the deaf applaud, you know. Yeah, yeah that's Except cool. Very often when I do it, I, when I get to the end the deaf, and then I'll say applauding. That's great. Okay, well, I think we have time for one more. One more question. Okay, one more question. And um, this is good. This is kind of... Um, about the uh, like modern or like with the information age, what do you think poetry's value is today, and does it have a value, and what do you think it is? Uh, you mean you're having to do with the whole internet, computer, uh, uh, all that stuff? Yes. Yeah. Well, I've got a website. In fact, www.ricmasten.com, and. Uh, I find it's been interesting. Um, I send my stuff out. It's in about probably 60 or 70 uh, different webs, uh, these uh, electronic uh, literary magazines out there. If you go to a one-page uh, webzines, you'll find a whole list of ones that have used my work, and some, some of it's still up and some of it isn't. But um, 
I've discovered the interpersonal communication with the editors of this has been when I had my operation. Um, I had 60 or 70 emails waiting when I came from, and these are people that I don't, that their race, their age, their gender, their economic situation, their physical attraction, their uh, geological location have nothing to do with the relationship that we're having, which creates almost a closer, believe it or not, closer relationship than I have with my next door neighbor because it's 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 more spiritual I mean because in a sense you're really and, and believe me I didn't I didn't think this was going to happen 10 years ago I, I was against the whole concept of computers and internet and all of that but I think I just we just have to move over and say it's something new I do a lot of the one-liner drawings for my poetry on the computer. Uh, people find out how I do it, and they say, well, that's not like drawing. I said, don't you think that all the oil painters were upset with the first lithographer? And I, that's cheating. You can make four or five copies. That's not right. It's just a new art form going to move things along further. And this is a true story. For, for Francis Whitaker, he was a blacksmith in Carmel and then left. To children, Francis was a redwood, towering hammer on anvil, shooting stars against his apron, iron bending to his will, glowering when we edged in too close, then as we backed away, softened the glower with a wink. Called the cops on me once. I deserved it, a thoughtless teenager taking pot shots at pelicans. Francis knew the shock of an arrest would make a more indelible impression than a talking to. Feeling crowded, he left our town, for the higher ground of Colorado. His forge in the forest, a restaurant now, the clink of glass, click of cutlery, replace the wheeze and clang of creativity. Returned for a visit a year or so ago, nearly 90, the conquering hero, announcing that his art didn't start to come together till he was over 70. I was 65 and thinking of retiring. He's gone now, passed away. Hammer in hand, they say, had it with him in his hospital bed. The nurses tried, but Francis would not let go of it until he died. Which leaves me part of the anointed cyber-smart communication generation with the pointed question, when I die, what will I be clutching to my heart? Well, thank you, Mr. Masson. You bet. Well, I just, just hope it isn't a mouse. <laughs> It's wonderful, and I want to thank you for your time. Oh, you bet. My pleasure. This has been Rick Mastin on KSPB. Let it be a dance we do. May I have this dance with you. Through the good times and the bad times, too. Let it be a dance. In case some of you kids don't know, we'll do it one more time. Let it be a dance we do. May I have the stance with you Through the good times and the bad times too Let it be a dance, let a dancing song be heard Play the music, say the words And fill the sky with sailing birds And let it be a dance, let it be a dance let it be a dance, learn to follow, learn to lead. 
Feel the rhythm, fill the need. To reap the harvest, plant the seed. And let it be a dance, let it be a dance we do. May I have this dance with you. Through the good times and the bad times too. Let it be a dance, everybody turn and spin. Let your body learn to bend And like a willow with the wind Let it be a dance, let it be a dance Let it be a dance A child is born, the old must die Time for joy, time to cry So take it as it passes by and let it be a dance, a let it be a dance we do. May I have this dance with you, through the good times and the bad times too. Let it be a dance, the morning star comes out at night. Without the dark, there could be no light. And if nothing's wrong, then nothing's right. So let it be a dance, let it be a dance, let it be a dance, let the sun shine, let it rain. Share the laughter, bear the pain. Round and round, we go again. So let it be a dance, let it be a dance, we do. May I have this dance with you. Through the good times and the bad times too. Let it be a dance once more for the mountains. Let it be a dance we do. May I have this dance with you. Through the good times and the bad times too. Let it be a dance we do. That was Let It Be a Dance, which is one of Rick's more popular songs. It's on a lot of his albums. I thought we would end with that. And I wanted to read a poem of his called Loneliness. And I relate to this. This is how it feels sometimes being on tour <laughs> and knowing that ultimately we come into this world alone and we leave alone. So this is Loneliness by Rick Mastin. Standing by a highway, waiting for a ride, a bitter wind is blowing, keeps you cold inside. A line of cars is passing. No one seems to care. You look down at your body to be sure you are there. Sitting in a hotel, staring at the wall, with cracks across the ceiling and silence in the halls, you open up the window and turn the TV on. Then you go down to the lobby, but everybody's gone. And this is loneliness, the kind that I have known. If you've had times like these, my friend, you're not alone. So you leave the empty city and go down to the shore. You're aching to discover what you're looking for. The beaches are deserted in the morning time. A solitary figure, you walk the water line. Come upon a tide pool and stand there peering in. And when you touch the water, the circles do begin. They lead to where a seabird lies crumpled on the sand. So you take a single pebble and hold it in your hand. And this is loneliness, another kind I've known. If you've had times like these, my friend, you're not alone. You come back to the beaches at the end of the day and see how all the footprints have been washed away. No, nothing is forever. We are born to die. So may I say I love you before I say goodbye. 
I must say I love you before I say goodbye. Beautiful poem. All right. Well, this week we have a very, very cool, special Patreon Larshan. This week we have Zeb Dallas, a cool, young YouTuber, social media personality. Great guy. He came to our Milwaukee show. He interviewed Megaran and myself for his YouTube channel. He called in and told a story. So, Zeb Dallas, thanks for being on the podcast. Let's hear what you got to say. MC Lars, um, thank you for being a really good friend and letting me go on stage with you and rap about Mr. Raven. This is Zeb Dallas, and thank you for letting me do an interview with you from Janesville. Zeb will be receiving a shirt. Thank you very much. And shout out to his dad, John Paul. All right, so this has been the MC Lars Podcast, a special episode with Rick Mastin. Next week, we have Kirby Crackle, another storyteller of sorts, but of the more of the nerdy variety. Kirby Crackle, Kyle Stevens, inspired me to start my Patreon. My Patreon is very much modeled on his, so shout out to him. Even like the phrasing and how I laid everything out, so I wanted to give him that shout out. But we're going to talk about what he's been up to. Be sure to tune in. Thank you all for listening, and... uh Rick Mastin, thanks again for everything, man. It was an honor meeting you. All right, take care, everyone. Bye.